Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic, what he called the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. I wonder if you've ever stopped to ask yourself the most fundamental question, namely, what is the Christian Gospel? What did Jesus challenge his audience to believe as the Gospel or Good News? What did he mean by the phrase so often found on his lips, the kingdom of God? We've been talking about the way Jesus initiated his evangelistic ministry. Looking at the early chapters of Mark's gospel, we discovered that when Jesus opened his mission in Galilee, he challenged the people to believe in the kingdom of God, the gospel about the kingdom of God. Now, the message of Jesus is for all time, until the end of this age when he comes back to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And so that initial challenge of Jesus, that we should repent, that's to say, do a U-turn in our life, in our conduct, in our thinking, and believe in the gospel as Jesus preached it, remains just as crucial for us today as it did for those people who heard him some 2,000 years ago. Let's return to our discussion of the parable of the sower. In the fourth chapter of Mark, the eighth chapter of Luke, and the thirteenth chapter of Matthew. We've been looking at the different types of soils into which Jesus sowed his message of the kingdom. We noted that this parable of the sower, or the soils, is described by Mark as the master parable. It gives us the clue to all the parables. Indeed, Jesus said that unless we understand this illustration, This comparison of soils with different types of people as they hear the message, unless we understand this parable, we really are not able to grasp any of the parables. The very fact that this parable is recorded three times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke makes it supremely important as a key to our success as Christians. The master parable of the sower or the soils gives us the most amazing warning about our human tendency not to accept the gospel message as Jesus preached it. Only one out of the four categories mentioned in the parable actually bore fruit, or rather mature fruit. The other three categories of soil failed to persevere through trials and tribulations, and they did not bear fruit fit for the coming kingdom. And everything depended on an initial reception of the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 13, verse 19. In Luke's version of Jesus' parable, in Luke chapter 8, we saw that the first group of those among Jesus' audience never really got hold of the message at all. They were exposed to the message, but the devil came along and removed the message from their hearts so, as Jesus said, so that they could not believe and be saved, Luke 8 verse 12. And remember that the message in question is Jesus' own gospel about the kingdom. Now, what about the second category? Well, these were the ones where the seed of the kingdom message was sown on rocky soil. Now, they are enthusiasts for the message. They say a hearty amen to the message, and they're thrilled to have accepted Jesus and his teaching. But Jesus said they have no firm root. They believe for a while. Did you catch that statement? Jesus said 
they believe for a while. Did you know that Jesus did not subscribe to the popular idea that once a person has accepted the gospel, he's bound to be saved no matter what? This is obviously not what Jesus taught. Listen again carefully to what Jesus said here. There is a category of believers who believe for a while, Jesus said. Those are Jesus' very own words in Luke 8, verse 13. These people were Christian believers for a while, but they did not remain Christians. You see, in verse 12 of Luke 8, Jesus had just explained that it was the reception of the kingdom message which concerned the devil so much. The devil attempted to snatch that message of the kingdom away from the heart of the potential convert so that they could not believe, that's to say, become a Christian and be saved, Luke 8:12. And in the very next verse, Jesus recognizes a category of person who believes for a while, that's to say, was a true believer for a while, was a Christian for a while, but they did not remain Christians. Now, what was the reason for this failure? Well, Jesus explains it. In time of testing, they fall away, he said. That's the word which often refers to abandoning the faith. So this group of Christians are the ones who had accepted the message of Jesus and yet ceased to be Christians after a while. They started well. They were believers, but they were believers only temporarily. Now, anyone hearing these words must reflect on the very widespread idea that once you believe, you inevitably remain a believer for all time. That simply cannot be true in view of Luke 8, verse 13, where Jesus says that some believe only for a while. This is a good example of how Jesus' words continuously challenge some of our most cherished convictions. Such teaching of Jesus about how one has to persist to the end as a Christian in order to be successful is for the strong, those who are willing to rethink some of their beliefs and bring them into line with the tough teachings of Jesus. Now, this sort of rethinking, re-examination, and re-evaluating of Jesus' teaching is the essence of a good Berean exercise. We've been referring many times to the famous verses in Acts 17, verses 11 and onwards, where we learn there of a group of people from the city of Berea who, when they heard what Paul presented as the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, they searched the scriptures on a daily basis to see if what Paul was saying was true. Now, I fear that in our current time, many are not regularly reading the Bible at all. And even if they are reading the Bible, they're not really searching it diligently, daily, in an effort to verify and to check the teachings that they've been exposed to. But this is an essential exercise for every Christian. Each Christian must take personal responsibility for examining the Scriptures on a daily basis to compare what he hears by way of preaching from various sources with the inspired record contained in the documents we call the Bible. Now, this verse in Luke 8, verse 13, provides an excellent opportunity for some rethinking. Luke here records that Jesus said that some who receive the message of the kingdom, who become Christians, cease to be Christians after a while. Now, that sort of teaching is very far from the common idea that once saved, you are always saved. That simply cannot be squared with the plain words of Jesus in Luke 8.13. 
and I might add, in many other passages of Scripture. We might refer also then to the 15th chapter of John, where we read that Jesus is the true vine, and the branches in him must bear fruit. Any branch in Jesus which does not bear fruit is cast out, and men gather them together, and they are burned. You see, those are branches which are in Jesus. That's to say, they aren't Christians, but if they fail to bear fruit, then they are rejected, even though they were initially Christians and accepted the message. But their failure to bear fruit means that they are finally rejected. This makes the whole New Testament doctrine of salvation a great deal more challenging and exciting because there is, according to Jesus, the possibility of failure. And do you remember that Paul, on one occasion, said that he hoped that he would not be a castaway after preaching the gospel to so many people? So even in the case of Paul the Apostle, there was the possibility that if he did not persist to the end, that he himself could be rejected by Jesus. Now that puts a very different complexion on the whole of the New Testament teaching. It shows us that Christianity is like a race. Now, nobody wins a race at the starting gun. We win the race only when we arrive at the finishing tape. And it's exactly like that with New Testament Christianity. There's a beginning point, a middle point, and an end point. Salvation, so to speak, is in three tenses of the verb. There's a sense in which we begin our salvation. In that sense, we are saved in the past. There's a real sense in which we are being saved continuously. Often, the New Testament speaks of being saved. But there's a more important sense of salvation, and that is the sense that salvation is yet in the future. In Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul says, Salvation is now nearer to us than when we first believed. You see what he meant there? He looked upon salvation as something still lying in the future. It is nearer to us. We're getting closer to it than when we first believed. He didn't say that we're further away from our salvation in the past. That was not his point at all. Paul most commonly looked for salvation in the future. He said, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. He said that our salvation is now closer to us than when we first believed. Romans 13 verse 11. Now, that verse is worth pondering. We don't hear that quoted very much in relation to salvation in our time. Why is this? Because our stress and our emphasis has fallen almost entirely on past salvation. Now, that's not entirely wrong, but it is a distortion of the New Testament doctrine to say that salvation began in the past and is inevitable. No, we have to continue to be saved. We must go on being saved. And more important even than that, we are going to be saved in the future. That's why Christians are in a race. They're looking forward to the goal. And the goal of the Christian race is to inherit the kingdom of God on earth when Jesus returns. That's the language of the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't, in fact, speak about going to heaven. That's not the objective that Jesus offered to his followers. He promised them in Matthew 5, 5, that they would inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus, because they're going to have the earth as their inheritance. That was the goal and the objective that Jesus placed before all those who follow him. And that goal, of course, was established by the Old Testament scriptures, by the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 37:11, a 
a thousand years before Jesus' time, had stated no less than five times that the earth is to be the scene of salvation in the future. The earth is the arena of salvation. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus, because they're going to inherit the earth. And of course, in other passages, he said, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. So the earth and the inheritance of the earth is exactly the same as the inheritance of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God there is in the future. It's the kingdom which Christians are going to inherit and which they're going to possess and in which they are going to rule the world with the Messiah. You'll find that plainly stated in many passages, but if you're interested in searching that out, check Revelation 5 verse 10. There we have a marvelous statement about the Christian objective. That verse says that God is gathering together and preparing men and women of all nations and creeds and races, and they are going to rule as kings upon the earth. That doesn't sound very much like heaven as the objective of the Christian faith. Why do we talk so much about heaven? And when I get to heaven, and the Bible constantly speaks of us inheriting the kingdom of God on the earth and ruling with Jesus there in that new era that is promised throughout the Bible. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to check our findings carefully in the Bible. Join us again as we continue to probe the most vital questions about life and immortality as Jesus offers it to us in his good news about the kingdom of God.